most of us don't just want to read our Bible. We want to enjoy it. We want to understand it. This is the Bible Field Guide podcast. We make the Bible make sense. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the places of the Torah, all the different geographical locations where this particular story takes place. And we're going to see how setting functions to tell the story, to fill out the story that we're reading in these amazing five books. So I don't know about you, but to be honest, I did not love geography when I was in middle school. What I remember about geography is not any of the places that I learned. What I remember is my seventh grade geography teacher, his name was Mr. Selmeyer, and he had this really cool leather jacket and he rode a motorcycle. And obviously to a seventh grader, that's about the coolest thing that anybody could do. Even if the dude was balding, I mean, he was cool. And so I thought, okay, geography can't be that bad. But at the end of the day, again, what I took away was cool teacher. When you read stories, it might sound like a geography lesson to try and think about the various places inside of the story. But it's not just a pure geography lesson. Knowing places inside of a story help you understand what the story is doing because settings matter in stories. Let me try to show three different ways that settings matter inside of stories. Just take this example. If you're reading a story and it starts out and it describes the setting as space, what kind of story are you in? Well, you know, automatically you're probably in some sort of science fiction story. Setting tells you what kind of story you're reading. Another way that settings set expectations for the kind of story that you're reading might be the example of Beverly Hills. When you think about Beverly Hills, what kind of story do you expect to be reading? Well, perhaps a story of wealth and Hollywood. But in the you know old classic TV show, Beverly Hillbillies, it's a very different story. It's these hillbillies who are living in Beverly Hills. And, and that's one way that setting works. It, it'll set up an expectation, but perhaps the story breaks or, or goes a different direction than what you expect, which can make it funny or surprising. Okay, so, so settings, they set up expectations, but it's not just that. Settings can become characters. So again, a modern example would be the White House. So when you talk about a story taking place in the White House, you know what kind of story we're reading. We're reading a story of politics and power. But what's fascinating is that the White House itself can become a character in a story. You think about the way that we use the White House today. It's a metonymy for all people who are involved, right? So you can say the White House did this or the White House did that. And you're talking about the president or the president's cabinet. That's what we mean when we say the White House. So settings, they can set expectations, but they can also become characters in the story. Finally, sometimes settings are archetypal. So a great example of this is New York City. When a story is set in New York City, most of the time, it's not really set in New York City. New York City is just an archetype. It's the archetypal city. And so to put a story there, just a way of saying this is a story that takes place in the archetypal city, in the quintessential city. So settings have the power to set our expectations. Sometimes they function as characters. And sometimes settings function as archetypes. I like to think about settings kind of like hangers in your closet. A hanger in your closet is something that you use to, to hang something on. In the exact same way, storytellers will hang their stories on a particular setting. And it helps their story stand straight. It helps their story make sense. 
So what are the various settings inside of the Torah and inside of the Bible? Well, this is the part where we've got to do a little bit of geography. So suffer along with me. If you've got Google, you can search for some of these things on Google as I'm talking, or you can go onto our Instagram page. And on Wednesday, actually, we'll be releasing an image that, that gives you a geography of the ancient world. But the most important thing you've got to know about the ancient world is something called the Fertile Crescent. So you might remember that again from seventh grade geography. The Fertile Crescent is kind of an upside down U that exists in the Middle East where people were able to grow crops. It wasn't desert type region. And the Fertile Crescent, it runs from Israel up north into Syria, even farther north up into the very southern reaches of Turkey. It runs all the way through Iraq and, and, and just a little bit into Iran. So again, if you Google Fertile Crescent, you'll be able to find an image of it. But that region was called Mesopotamia, and that's a word that means between the rivers, because there were two great rivers that ran through the region, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and these two water systems were able to make these regions fertile. Now, in the ancient world, there were two major power centers that grew up out of the Fertile Crescent. One was the Empire of Babylon, and the other one was the Empire of Assyria, and if you remember back into your old history classes, you'll remember that the Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, is very much so the birthplace of civilization. It's where writing, literature, science, math, astronomy, law, and agriculture all come from. Okay, so, so now that we've got this idea of the Fertile Crescent in our mind, that's where many of the stories take place. We'll add in another one later, but here's what we need to know. The first thing, the first region we need to know about is the region of Canaan. So the Bible sometimes calls the region of Canaan Israel. Other times it calls it the promised land. In modern terminology, we call it the Levant or Palestine. But the point here is there was one particular region, the promised land, Israel. And this land, from the perspective of the Bible, is envisioned as a good land, a land where God's going to reboot Eden and put his people there. But what we have to know as we think about that land is that it wasn't necessarily the most wealthy or powerful land in the Middle East. In fact, it functioned as a land bridge between the Mesopotamian powers of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt. It was basically kind of a, a highway between those two regions. And that particular little strip of land, Israel, the promised land, it was where people would have their pit stops on the way from one place to another. Now, this made it a highly valuable land because it's valuable to own trade routes, um, and it made it a land where there was often war as a result, as different imperial powers were trying to take control of it. So Israel is on the one hand, if you think about a setting, it's a setting that's imagined as being idealistic. It's beautiful. It's overflowing with milk and honey. And yet it's also a setting that, that recalls images of war and imperial powers trying to take it over. Another region inside of the Fertile Crescent would be Babylon and Assyria. Now, in the Torah, these places aren't necessarily super important, but where we see them is actually in Genesis 11, the story of the building of the Tower of Babel. Now, here's what you need to know. The Hebrew word Babel or Babel, it is translated as Babylon in every other place in your Bible except for Genesis 11. And so I actually think it would be far more helpful to translate Genesis 11 as the Tower of Babylon, because that's what it's trying to tell. In the, in the eyes of Genesis, the Tower of Babylon is the quintessential archetypal evil empire. 
In Genesis 11, Babylon is is a new setting which is being created to be imagined again as the birthplace of human evil and and rebellion against God. And that's incredibly important as you continue to read the Bible. And again, Babylon really functions as an archetype. But Babylon is the place where we see um, humanity build this tower. It's also the place that we see God call Abraham out of to go to the promised land. Right? It's the place that we see God called Abraham out of to go into the promised land in Genesis 12. Another really important setting inside of the Torah is the setting of Egypt. So Egypt was a region to the south of Israel, and it also had a major river system, the Nile, and that allowed it to be the breadbasket of the ancient world. They had an amazing ability to grow crops as a result of the Nile and the Nile Delta. And so Egypt, what kind of setting was it? Well, when we first really read about Egypt, it's when we read the story of Abraham having to go there in a time of famine, and the Pharaoh takes Abraham's wife. And this is the first sign that that Egypt fits in some ways into the archetypal image of Babylon. It's a new kind of Babylon, a new place where humans are ruling and breaking each other. In fact, when we get to the wicked Pharaoh who enslaves the Israelites, he has them build uh, bricks. That's what they're doing. They're making bricks. And the particular kind of bricks that they're making, that particular term is only used in the story of Babylon, when they're making bricks. And so it's a way of saying that Egypt is kind of a new Babylon. Egypt is a new seedbed birthplace of evil and rebellion to God. A third location, and again, an incredibly important location inside of the Torah, is the wilderness. So when we talk about the wilderness, especially in the American West, we often think about the wilderness being a forested or deeply forested region. Now, that's not what the wilderness was in in the story of the Torah. So whenever we think about the wilderness in the Torah, we can't think about forests, but what we need to think about is a desert. Now, again, when I say desert, what often comes to our minds is a place filled with sand dunes. But again, that's not what the wilderness would have been. The wilderness was a rocky, craggy, mountainous region where there was virtually no life. Almost no green life, almost no animal life, and virtually no water. So when you said wilderness, you have to imagine, again, mountainous, craggy, desert, no life, no water. In fact, the book of Isaiah describes the wilderness as a place which is tohu vavohu, wild and waste. And that phrase, tohu vavohu, is also used in Genesis 1 to describe what the uncreated world is like. And that's kind of what the wilderness is envisioned as. It's a disordered, chaotic place where God's good order has not come into play or power. It's also viewed as a place where there are dark spiritual powers which are at work. And so when God takes his people into the wilderness, he's taking them into a place of chaos and disorder where they can only possibly live if God is there to order their lives and protect them. So those are some of the major places that we see inside of the Torah. If we think about those places in terms of the actual storytelling, it's really interesting because the story starts in Eden. And remember, when we talk about Eden, we have to think in some ways about the promised land. So we can almost imagine the story starting in the promised land with Adam. Adam sins and he is exiled from the garden. And what's fascinating is that it describes his descendants later on making their way all the way to nowhere else but Babylon. They're the ones who end up building the Tower of Babylon. And what does God do? 
Well, God calls a family out of Babylon back into the promised land, back into the place of Eden. We realize that when God's calling Abraham from this Babylon place to Canaan, he's calling him to reboot Eden, to start something new. But Abraham's children, they end up down in Egypt in in a new Babylon, we might say, where they are enslaved. And again, we see this exact same motion of God calling his people out of the new Babylon of Egypt. He calls them out, he rescues them, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, this place in the wilderness where God is going to reboot Eden, this place in the wilderness where God's going to begin to reorder creation. And when we start to get some of these places and settings in our head, it gives the story a new life. It helps us to see a little more clearly what's happening inside of the narrative. Thanks for listening to Bible Field Guide. Please subscribe and give us a rating if you like this content. It helps other people find our podcast. If you don't already follow us on Instagram, just search for Bible Field Guide or click the link in the show notes. Or you can go to our website, biblefieldguides.com, to browse what we've created so far. We're still in the very early stages of the project. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this is kind of our our first real jaunt into the Bible. So there's not a lot out there yet, but we've got a lot, lot, lot more planned. So if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas, or musings, you can go onto our website, email us there. Please reach out. We'd love to hear from you.